It's Wednesday, December 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. One of the most interesting aspects of the coronavirus pandemic is how our everyday lives have changed. One such thing is a move away from the culture of waste. People are regrowing scallions and growing herbs at home, washing and reusing Ziploc bags, and more. But while being this frugal in the past was mostly rooted in saving money, this time around it's a little different. There is a fear of scarcity and also an effort to avoid unnecessary movement. Meredith Haggerty, editor at Vox, joins us for the novel Frugality. Next, there's been a huge effort by daycare workers to prevent the spread of COVID-19, and it's paying off. A study of more than 57,000 childcare providers found that those who continued working through the pandemic weren't more likely to catch coronavirus than those that were out of work. Extra precautions such as cleaning surfaces daily, extra hand washing for kids, and keeping them in smaller and separate groups help limit the spread. Kate Bagley, contributor to Popular Science, joins us for more. Finally, thousands of U.S. troops will be taking part in a COVID-19 early detection study with the aim of understanding what it means to be asymptomatic and also catching illnesses before they get worse. Soldiers will wear biomeasuring devices that monitor small changes in the blood oxygen levels, heartbeat, or respiratory patterns. Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There's the fear that all these meat plants are being shut down, which they probably should be for safety. There are fears about toilet paper and Clorox wipes and all of these things that the supply chain, because of the way it's structured, is not able to just get up and out to us at the speed that we're currently demanding it. Joining us now is Meredith Haggerty, editor at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Meredith. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk a little bit about how our lives have changed because of the current pandemic that we're going through. One of the interesting things, there's this new sense of frugality that is set in for a lot of people. Anecdotally, you just hear some of these stories. And and even online, you've been seeing things about how people are growing green onions, scallions at their home so they don't have to get out to the store so much. Myself, I've taken to rewashing and reusing the little red plastic solo cups and even saving some of those plastic to-go containers from takeout and things like that. We're kind of all getting in this mode again. A lot of it is not necessarily new, but maybe the circumstances of why we're doing it is obviously new. So Meredith, tell us a little bit about how frugality has creeped back into America. So, I mean, I also, I noticed a lot of people tweeting or talking about, say, eating the ends of their bread for the first time or washing aluminum foil, which they hadn't done previously. I have not done that Uh, one yet. (laughs) I have. I've only just started doing that. I was not, I have to admit, like a super frugal person myself previously. But the thing that I thought was really interesting about this behavior is that when I first started hearing about it, it was from people who I knew, say, weren't necessarily in a position of economic precarity. There obviously is a lot of unrest and uncertainty about the future right now, and everyone's a little freaked out, but it seemed like these new behaviors weren't necessarily coming from a place of, will I be able to buy this stuff for my family again? It came a lot from a place of, is it safe for me to go buy this for my family again? Or is it safe for me to send somebody else to buy it? Or wouldn't it be better to maybe get a little bit more out of my bread, a little bit more out of my aluminum foil, a little bit more out of my Ziploc bags. And that's what we're seeing people sort of embracing and realizing what they had on their hands already. And you contrast this with the kind of thought of frugality from years past or, you know, your grandparents or other even culturally 
people that had to have saved because they've gone through tough times. They went through the Great Recession. They lived in a country maybe where they didn't have a lot of stuff, things like that. That's kind of where you think the basis of it comes from. But you're right. Everything is different now, you know, with all of these stay at home orders and people are genuinely freaked out sometimes about going out into public and getting sick. You're just kind of wanting to save as much as you can just to save yourself from being out there. So I talked to an expert in frugality, Ronald Goldsmith, who had studied it pre-pandemic. And he had talked about how, for the most part, there had been two types of frugality, intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic is just some people are naturally frugal. They might be super wealthy, but they're still going to save every takeout container no matter what. And there are other people who are extrinsically frugal, and that's because of the circumstances they find themselves in economically. For the most part, what Mr. Goldsmith said to me was they would like to be able to be less frugal, but they don't have the funds for it. And in this case, we're seeing just sort of this moment where people who were not intrinsically frugal are suddenly becoming extrinsically frugal, but not because they don't have the money, but because they are dealing with this unprecedented situation that we're all dealing with right now. And it's crazy because we invented this whole industry of disposable products, really. A bunch of stuff. You mentioned them in the article, diapers, cameras, contact lenses, the plastic bags, the Ziploc bags, all of this stuff is just disposable things for us. And now even with the Ziploc bags, people are washing them and turning them inside out and drying them so they can reuse them. And, you know, these are all these things. Maybe so going back to this getting out in the world, just so you don't have to rebuy them again. And some people like kind of that regret sets in too. It just happened to me because I 100% literally just ran out of these gallon size Ziploc bags. And I'm like, man, I should have washed some of these this past week and saved those. Yeah, it's like, oh, when I don't have this anymore, I don't have it in a way that I think some people just hadn't really experienced in the same way before. It's a strange time, but I think that cultural disposability thing, that's sort of the thing I really wanted to get at in this piece too, is like America has a materials culture and has for 70 some odd years at least, maybe more. And we've been encouraged through marketing and through the way that things are made through planned obsolescence, through disposability, just to think of things as being able to be thrown away and that we constantly need the new thing, that we're always being sold something else. And that was good for marketers. That was good for companies. It's not necessarily good for the environment. It's not necessarily good for us. And more importantly, it's not necessarily necessary, which I think is the thing that people often forget. I have always thrown away Ziploc bags and I've only just started rewashing them. And it's like, oh, now I still have Ziploc bags. Like (laughs) what a small miracle. Talk to me a little bit about the fear of scarcity and panic buying, because we know we all remember the stories right when this happened. Obviously, the toilet paper, paper towels, cleaning supplies, that was the first stuff to go. Right now, we're hearing about things with the food supply and certain things might not be available. Tell me a little bit about that. So we're definitely seeing fears around the supply chain. As someone who's reported on the supply chain in the past, I've never heard people talk about it in conversation quite as much as we are these days. There's the fear that all these meat plants are being shut down, which they probably should be for safety. There are fears about toilet paper and Clorox wipes and all of these things that the supply chain, because of the way it's structured, is not able to just get up and out to us at the speed that we're currently demanding it. So I think that instills in people just a real fear of like, even if I go to the supermarket, if I get myself out and I go out there, will there be the thing that I need there? Um, Which is an unusual thought in 2020 America before the pandemic. Definitely interesting times with what's going on. And one of these things that's interested me so much is how we're adapting and changing to all of this. So I want to use the term you coined for the article. It's just so interesting how this novel coronavirus has instilled this novel frugality in a lot of people. Meredith Haggerty, editor at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
these results really shouldn't be extrapolated to uh, schools working with older kids, partly because the average school has so many more kids than the average daycare center, and also they're moving around more. Joining us now is Kate Bagley, contributor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. We have some good news for parents with young children. There was a recent study of more than 57,000 child care providers across the U.S., and they found out that child care programs really aren't likely to spread COVID-19 through the community. This is when employees are taking a lot of precautions, such as wearing masks, keeping the kids socially distanced from each other, and cleaning, a ton of cleaning. So, Kate, tell us a little bit more about how the study was done and what we learned. Researchers surveyed more than 57,000 people who worked at daycare centers across all 50 states, also Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. And about half of them had kept coming into work through the early months of the pandemic, and about half of them, their workplace had closed or they weren't able to come into work. And they found that the ones who were coming into work weren't more likely to catch COVID-19 than the workers who didn't. They were catching COVID-19 at about the same rate as American adults generally. And yeah, that indicates that child care centers don't worsen the spread of COVID-19 in the community. There were a couple things they noticed. They saw that respondents who are Black, Latino, or Native American were more likely to have tested positive than the respondents who are white. And child care workers in counties where there were more COVID-19 deaths were also more likely to have caught COVID-19. But these patterns were separate from whether they were coming into work or not. And they were taking very extensive precautions, yeah, disinfecting every service, sometimes multiple times a day, frequent hand washing, uh, staggering arrival and departure times, other things like that. So, you know, this doesn't mean that no one could catch COVID-19 at a daycare center. So it's you know, important to keep COVID-19 under control by continuing to do things like wearing masks and social distancing. But it is an encouraging sign that when these extensive precautions are taken, that daycare centers won't worsen spread of COVID-19 in the community. Going back to what they were doing to keep everything clean and all that, more than 90% of those that were surveyed reported that they were frequently washing their hands and indoor surfaces at least once a day. And in some cases, I think more than half, they did it about three times every day. So that is a lot of cleaning. That's a lot of uh, steps to kind of go through. But that's kind of what we were always hearing, you know, keeping things clean is going to help out with that. One of the interesting things about this survey study was that it was just daycare centers or or people that were working in daycares with very young children. I think it was children under six. Yeah, the vast majority were under six. These results really shouldn't be extrapolated to uh, schools working with older kids, partly because the average school has so many more kids than the average daycare center. And also they're moving around more, you know, each class they are mixing, they're leaving and going to different classes. And it's just a lot harder to control sort of in the same way. So, you know, the the researchers that some of the things they were able to pull off with daycare centers may not apply for uh, schools with older kids. Right. But for parents with young children that need to go to work, that, you know, had come to rely on these daycare centers maybe before the pandemic hit, uh, it's at least good news for them that with all those proper precautions, uh, you can at least know that your kids are safe there and safe coming back home at least. Yeah. And one thing that I will say is that, again, it's not as though no one could catch COVID-19 at a daycare center. So 
Again, that's why it's so important to keep COVID-19 from being out of control in the community generally. Um, but the daycare centers themselves do not appear to be worsening it. So that's um, that's encouraging news. Yeah, I mean, that's great. It's encouraging, as you mentioned, it's still in keeping in track with what we know about the virus and children, that they are spared the worst effects. And then uh, beyond that, parents uh, that need to have this service, uh, they know they can uh, still be safe with all of it. So good news for parents with young children. Kate Bagley, contributor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It was a pleasure speaking with you. So the military overall, since March, has had about 43,000 of their service members test positive for COVID-19. And of those, there's been seven deaths among the military, far lower than the statistics for the general population. Joining us now is Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Great to be with you. wanted to talk about uh, an interesting study that uh, American troops are going through right now. Basically, what does it mean to be asymptomatic? There's a new study that's trying to look to identify troops that have these kind of barely perceptible symptoms, quarantine them early. And they're hoping, obviously, that this could apply larger. But so they're looking at these slight changes in the body, blood oxygen levels, a bunch of different things. This is kind of a study that was already ongoing, but now they're applying this to COVID-19 research as well. Nancy, tell us a little bit about what this study is supposed to uh, help out with. So as you referenced, the military is keenly interested in figuring out early detection for any kinds of illnesses like the flu, for example, because they have units, for example, special forces deploying to remote areas. And if there's somebody in that unit who could be contagious from flow down the unit, they want to know who that person is and, and eliminate them as early as possible from the possibility of contaminating others. And so to that end, They've been working with private research to have service members wearing something almost like a Fitbit that measures any changes in respiratory, blood oxygen, saturation levels, and other factors that are sort of precursors to illness. And so what's happening now is that device and that research, which had started looking at symptoms of the flu, is now being applied to COVID. The idea being that rather than waiting for a fever to show up, if we can find changes in blood oxygen saturation or respiratory or heart rate early on that there might be a pattern that one can see that would offer an early detection before someone shows something more overt and maybe becomes more contagious because they've reached a level where they have a fever. Tell us about the actual study. My understanding is that they're looking for more than 5,000 troops in the coming weeks to join this. And this is something that's going on between the Defense Department and Phillips. That's right. And so what's happening, they've already started this with a few hundred, upwards of a thousand troops who are wearing this. These are largely U.S.-based troops who are wearing this. And what they're doing with these troops is they're not interacting with them directly, but rather they're collecting data. The idea is that the U.S. military offers the option of a large volume of a population. And so they're trying to get to as many troops as possible, hopefully 5,000 is their goal such that you would have a big data set to look at. And so they're going to be collecting over a period of weeks all these biological, physiological changes and seeing if they can detect a pattern. I should note that in some of these instances, some of the troops have warned them have then turned out to test positive for COVID-19. And so there's already sort of some data that they got from that. But I think the idea is that over time that they'll have 
such a large amount of data that they can start to draw conclusions and come up with a, a metric for at what point should one be concerned about whether they are sick with COVID-19. To be clear, this does not diagnose someone, but it's intended rather to find sort of early signs that suggest perhaps one should go to the doctor and get properly diagnosed. What do we know about numbers of COVID cases in the military so far? So the military overall since March has had about 43,000 of their service members test positive for COVID-19. And of those, there's been seven deaths among the military, far lower than the statistics for the general population. I think the most sort of famous instance of an outbreak of COVID-19 within the U.S. military was aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which was a carrier that was operating in the Pacific when it had an outbreak of more than 1,000, if I recall correctly. That's about a, of a 4,800-member crew. And what's interesting is in that case, many, many of those who tested positive showed no symptoms at all. And so there's already been a real-world sort of challenge for the United States military vis-a-vis COVID. And the interesting thing is that the numbers sort of tell one story. Practically speaking, what you're seeing in the military is a restriction on movement because of um, concerns about COVID-19. Service members now having to quarantine for two weeks before they go out on deployment. So there's been a real shift in operations because of COVID-19. And that was really triggered, I think, in terms of substantial changes to how the United States military operates by the outbreak on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. But the numbers overall are quite positive from the military's perspective in terms of ratio of total number of cases to deaths compared to the general population. Now, of those 43,000, about a half, maybe more so, a little bit more, have are recovered. So remember, this is out of a population of about 2 million plus. With this type of study, you know, it's not very invasive or anything. They're just kind of collecting data from, as you mentioned, these are these smart watches or smart rings or things that they're using. Is this uh, an opt-in thing for the service members? Because you know, obviously we're kind of using them as guinea pigs for this type of study, but is this all opt-in for them? So yes and no. I think there are units that are sort of volunteering. I don't think anybody's being asked to wear it who doesn't want to. I think if someone speaks up and says they don't want to wear it, that is an option. But you're getting at a bigger issue, which is the relationship between medicine and the military goes all the way back to the beginning of war itself, because so often the military, because of the injuries you see in war, has been a place, a source for research and understanding of new challenges in terms of medical treatment. I think we saw this most recently in the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, PTSD, TBI, and of course, amputees and those who have lost limbs and how they recover over the long term and when a service member had to lose, had to confront amputation. I think at the beginning of the war, there was one understanding, and as those wars progressed, there's been a more sophisticated understanding of when that process has to happen, what can be saved, what cannot. And so there's a long long history of that interaction. This, relatively speaking, is the least invasive. We, we, yeah. We've also had a history of the military um, testing medicines and other things on service members unwittingly and even seen lawsuits because of the consequences of those tests. Yeah, well, for now, I mean, as you mentioned, this is pretty uh, non-invasive, and uh, I think it's very worthwhile if they can apply this to ongoing technologies that we have readily available. As I mentioned, the iWatch can test these blood oxygen levels. I mean, this could be really good for looking for uh, early detection uh, of illnesses in other people as well. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.